0: Hey everybody, you're listening to the Hope in Crisis podcast, where Tim Costello brings you intimate conversations with his inspiring friends from around the world during this difficult time of coronavirus. Our desire is that you would be filled with hope through these conversations, to remain faithful and resilient during these unprecedented times. On this episode, Tim speaks to Josh and Belinda Groves, founders and directors of Sapeo, an organisation that works to rehabilitate and educate children living on the street in the nation of Lesotho. I'm
1: delighted to welcome Josh and Belinda Groves to this episode of Hope in Crisis." Josh and Belinda, are remarkable Australians who have uh, begun a outreach ministry in Lesotho. Welcome Josh and Belinda.
0: Thank you for Thank having you. us.
1: So tell us first of all, where is Lesotho and how you got involved there?
0: So Lesotho is a very small landlocked country that is completely surrounded by South Africa. Um, I thought I knew Africa quite well, but I'd actually never heard of it. Um, but in 2012, I took a temporary position in Lesotho to help with supporting electoral observation for the national elections. So I was an Australian volunteer, and my job was to uh, support a local organization there in monitoring elections over a period of, of 18 months. Um, at the time, Josh and I were married, but he remained in Australia. And the intention was that I would rejoin him at the end of my contract.
1: And what happened then? The marriage is obviously still working. So, what happened?
0: <laughs> um, I, I was confronted. To be perfectly honest, I was confronted with the overwhelming reality of poverty, um, the way it impacted um, on children. On my daily walk to my job, I was I was constantly confronted by children who were begging from me, homeless children, um, and they were there in, the, in their hundreds and. I just could not pretend that I, I had not seen that. Mm. And so I determined that at least for the time that I was there, I would seek to understand this problem. Um, there were a lot of organisations that were working to, to help children on the streets, but but nothing seemed to be effective in, in keeping them off and I wanted to understand that. Mm.
1: So you came home and talked to Josh. You came home after 18 months alone there. No.
0: I didn't. I never came back.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I you, went over, Josh, uh, you think, I went over, Josh. And did you think Belinda had taken leave of her senses or how did you feel?
2: Well, we had done the journey together. Uh, we would talk nearly every day and she was learning new things about the street. And over time, she was spending more and more of her time on the street. And the children weren't generic children. They were children with names and families and communities and I started to know these children at a distance and we came to a decision after about 18 months that we need to do something Um, there's not someone else coming there's not some magical solution coming Uh, we felt a responsibility that we needed to act to get children back into families
1: so this was a, a literally a big step of faith because you, Belinda, had been working in uh, for a politician in New South Wales, and you were a captain in the army, the Australian military, Josh. So right. you both took leave of your jobs and went over to start something together in Lesotho.
2: That's right, and you know, we we really made the decision uh, at about three weeks' notice. Um, left and started Sapeo on my last paycheck, which retrospectively is a scary thing to do, but at the time it just felt like the right thing. Wow. So uh,
1: Sapeo, this is the the ministry with Street Kids. Tell us uh, how you started it and how with one paycheck, your last paycheck, you sustained it.
0: Um. We, we did whatever was in front of us with what we had and mm. what emerged was an extremely effective strategy that we may not have stumbled upon if we'd started with a lot of money. Um, we could only afford to do what was working. So what we discovered was um, over 18 months we traced families for every child who lived on the streets and we discovered a pattern. 80% of children on the streets came from one particular village and mm. every single one of them had family. So we had to understand what was separating children from their families and how we could overcome that obstacle to get children back into communities where they belonged. Um, We saw a problem with reintegrating children in regular schools because some of the the behaviours and the trauma they'd experienced just didn't fit in mainstream education. And so all of our attempts to reintegrate kids in normal schools, they they universally failed and we realised the only way we're going to get children to stay in families is if we have a school that understands and helps rehabilitate these children. So we started one.
1: Wow. Wow. And, and why were 80% from one village? What was going on in that village?
0: It's an extremely dysfunctional and transient village. Mm-hmm. The the core of community that sustains community elsewhere Um isn't, isn't evident in this particular village. Um, people are, are constantly traveling in and out. Um, it's extremely poor. There's a lot of single parenthood. There's high crime, very few jobs. And so um, there's a lot of abuse and neglect and child abandonment. And we also found that children didn't arrive on the street unilaterally, they often were brought there by their peers. So, one child arriving on the street would then go home and bring other children to the street and they'd follow one another in that sense.
1: And how many children are we talking of on the street and, and what is the population of Lesotho?
0: Well, Lesotho is actually quite a small country, uh, less than 2 million people the capital is around two hundred and fifty thousand. Um, the main street is actually extremely small. The, there's one main road in the CBD. It's about two k's yeah. long, and at the time there were around two hundred and fifty children who lived on one street. Wow! Um, and it was a deeply entrenched problem. They'd been there for years, um, and were generally considered impossible. These children were immovable. That they, they, they will be there forever. They will die there. That was the that was the sense when we began. Um, Right now what we're seeing is you can walk from one end of that street to the other and not find a single child on the street. We've been able to successfully remove 95% of kids from that main street and three years on they're still in their homes.
1: So just getting my head around it, it's a remarkable story. Was there no one working with these kids before you went there or were they working and the programs just didn't achieve what you achieved?
0: There were a lot of people working with kids on the streets. But um, what I think is sometimes we can design our programs without without understanding the root cause. So Mm -hmm. most of the programs were around addressing symptoms. There were feeding programs, clothing programs, Um, without understanding there's a relational problem here that needs to be fixed, and and a lot of other problems um, that develop the longer a child remains on the streets. Problems with identity was one that we we kept coming up against because while the street is a circumstance when a child first arrives, they can become and fit this identity of a street kid um, over time with a lot of reinforcement, and that's actually the most difficult thing to change because if a child believes this is who I am, then it's very difficult to get them to be someone else, a student, a family member. So actually most of our strategies go after identity um, and also um, helping them to fit back into their family and providing the necessary family supports to do that.
2: Tim, I'd add to that, a lot of the work uh, that was being done before we started reinforced the identity of Street Child. That's a hey, come to Street Kids Feeding Day, come to um, a Street Child um, clothing, come to Street Child Soccer. And all that did was reinforce, you are a strict child. Yeah. And everything we do tries to remove that identity. Yeah. You're a regular child at a regular school.
1: So the vehicle for uh, rewiring identity and relabeling was a school. Tell us about how you funded that, what the school does that's different.
0: Uh, we, we didn't fund it. <laughs> we, we had absolutely nothing. Um, and we began with what we had, which was a folding table that was our dining table that we used to put in our backyard at yeah. 10 o'clock every day. And children would come to school in our backyard, and that went on for a couple of years. We then progressed to a tent. But what we saw was remarkable because we actually negotiated with children that to attend our school, you need to be in a home. You can't live on the streets. You need to help us find a relative of yours that you're willing to live with who loves you, but then you need to sleep there every night. Mm. And we started with a very small group who started sleeping at home and it built momentum. We started to see children arriving at our school from the streets saying, please help me find my uncle so that I can live with him and meet criteria to come to your school. And the environment at our school is so healing, it is so tailored to the needs of children who've been rejected and traumatised, that it just creates that desire amongst other children to get off the streets.
1: So given that uh, 80% were from a village, I'm assuming some distance away, most um, still had a relative in the capital city there. Is that how it worked?
2: Well, so the village we're talking about is on the urban fringe, so really uh-huh. about three and a half kilometres from the centre of town. Okay. Which, which is what made going to the streets so easy. Yes. Um, so Sapeo has moved into that village right into the middle. Um, so that has enabled us to uh, address a lot of the other root causes that were driving kids there in the
0: first place. What we what we saw was that the first indicator that a child would would arrive on the street is that they would start missing school. So because we are now inside that village, we're working with the schools in that village to identify kids as soon as they start skipping school. And we're intervening at that point. And by doing that, we've been able to stem the flow of new children arriving on the streets as well.
1: Wow. So the school, does it do Normal classes, What describe how the school works because it's presumably not just a, a folding table in your backyard now.
0: No,
2: it's, it's evolved a lot since then. Uh, for us, it's about catching children up as quickly as possible um, on primary education. Um, you, you've got to think that we're dealing with children who are 14, 15, 16 years old and who are illiterate. They've never had a schooling experience. So our school, our class is very small um, and we have a lot of individual focus on helping children to catch up at their own pace as quickly as possible.
0: So children leave our school with the same primary certificate as any other school in the in the nation and then they go on to regular high schools or vocational schools.
1: Wow. So I keep hinting at this, but how do you fund this? How does it sustain
2: itself? How does it sustain itself? So... At the moment, we have a lot of generous um, donors from Australia, a lot of churches who are so enthusiastic about supporting this and we we love the way that they're sacrificial. Um, But, of course, we've built quite a a good supporter base within Lesotho um, because we believe there is capacity there to to fund and uh, we're about pretty close to 50% funded from Lesotho, 50% uh, from elsewhere in the world. Um, And so we've seen a lot of local ownership uh, for Sapeo and what we're achieving. Yeah.
1: And that local ownership is critical, I guess, now that you are caught with COVID in Australia, the school is still continuing with you not being there. Am I right?
0: Absolutely.
2: We have great leadership.
0: We we determined from the outset we would not build this organisation on us. Um, We, 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 believe profoundly God created every single person for a purpose. And our organisation, actually means purpose. It's the Sutu word for purpose, that every child on the street actually was created for a purpose, and that inside Lesotho are people that God placed there for this time for a purpose. And so we have built our entire organisation on Basutu, by Basutu, with Basutu, and they have been carrying this even while we were there. They're carrying this now that we are not there.
2: How many um, students would be in the school? So in any year, we have uh, between 200 and 250 kids in our school. Yeah, wow. So COVID-19 is changing
1: the world, and uh, when I think of Lesotho, I know, um, and it's true of most of Africa, it had high levels of HIV infection, so they'd already had to face the trauma of a virus and um How is COVID-19 affecting Lesotho?
2: COVID-19 is affecting Lesotho in a a different way to what it is the rest of the world. Uh, The rate of um, infection at the moment is very low, um, as of yesterday below 30 cases. Uh, But the the economic and social impact has been uh, really profound. Uh, Mm -hmm. Our borders were locked down and the nation was put in lockdown quite early on. Uh, And what that meant for the poorest is that they couldn't work. And if they couldn't work that day, they couldn't eat that day. And that situation has now been going on for months. Uh, Not only is there the issue of starvation, which is uh, prolific right now, uh, there are the the social impacts of uh, families living together, uh, being hungry, being on edge, uh, not being able to work. And that's what we're facing right now.
1: And I know you've been responding to that hunger situation. Tell me about that and how you're doing it. So
2: early on, uh, we started. We predicted that that hunger would be an issue. And our organisation is is quite small on the scale of things. And we had an idea that maybe if we stretched and applied ourselves, we could feed 500 families. Uh, And as we planned for that and were about to initiate, the team came back and said, this is actually much worse than that. We can't pick that family and not that family. Mm. So we said, okay, let's do a 1,000, which, again, uh, all our eyes were wide thinking, I'm not sure we can do this. But, again, as we were about to implement that, um, some larger feeding programs were coming through and the trucks were being turned away because they were being mobbed, even while they were protected by soldiers. So together with the team, we decided we need to feed the whole village Uh, Because of the desperation that we're facing, and that was definitely a faith statement. Uh, We did not have the money in the bank to do that. That we just whole villages,
1: how many people, or how many families?
2: Nine thousand families, thirty five thousand people. Wow! And you know, we had no idea how to do that. We are not a food relief organization at all. But the team got out on foot and used their, their deep connection in the village and relationships with established structures like our village chiefs, and we have 33 chiefs all around us. And we mapped the whole village with them and came up uh, with a plan with the village chiefs about how to distribute. And I th- people have responded to the call, whether it is the, the mill that we're ordering our maize mill from. Uh, whether it is donors in Australia or churches, and we can support this. We can get behind that. So we've already uh, conducted the first third, the first 3,000 homes, and that distribution was done flawlessly. Uh, Our team, they're not logisticians, but it was an impeccably um, outworked distribution, no violence, complete order. Yeah, I know from my work that
1: uh, the logistics of food distribution are so sensitive because of uh, of uh, desperate people, of hungry mm. people, of violence. Um, protecting mm. staff is always a big issue. Your your team has been able to negotiate and manage all that.
0: They have. They have, and we have a team of predominantly young women, unmarried young women who are just gutsy and prepared to believe that nothing's impossible. Mm.
1: And given the economic downturn and who knows until a vaccination comes when there's going to be trade and economic activity again, I'm guessing you're digging in for the long haul even with this feeding program.
2: We are. We're watching what the need is um, really day by day. Um, We're preparing for um, this to be prolonged, but we're also preparing how do we respond socially? How do we respond to domestic violence, mm. uh, for example, as it emerges?
1: So I, I, I suppose you're itching to be back there, but being caught here, you don't know when you guys can get back here. What, what keeps you motivated? Where does this vision and drive come from?
0: having seen that the word of God is truth Hmm. and that many of the social issues that we can feel overwhelmed by, God has a plan for. So we are just wanting to play our part, our small part, in the body of Christ um, to allow God to do impossible things, to wow us, to reach the people that were so far excluded and considered too far gone because he's proven that he can and we know he wants to do more. Hmm.
2: And we believe God has given us a very small glimpse of just how much he loves people. I don't think any person can really understand the extent to which God loves people and cares for them. But we we have a sense of that, that we carry in our hearts. And that's what really does motivate us.
1: It's been absolutely extraordinary talking to you. Can I just um, ask, in terms of how long the mission has been going, when did you begin? How many years in are you?
2: We are seven years in. This out in 2013.
1: And as you look at your own lives and calling, this is looking for you like it is a, a life work, a life
2: calling? It, it is. Um, I don't think we could go back and do anything else, working with children who uh, feel like outsiders, young women, who feel like they don't belong um, and introducing them to the, the wonder that they were created for a purpose you can't match that for anything.
1: And Belinda, what was uh, just uh, 18 months of uh, supervising an, an election has become uh, life transforming. How has it changed you, Belinda? Oh,
0: I'm, a <laughs> I'm a completely different person. I'm a completely different person. I have seen... Um, I have seen miracles in individuals. I have seen miracles in communities that the, the, the people that we have worked through were on their way to be murderers. Mm. I mean, that, that's they, they were set, they were intent, I'm going to kill people and I'm going to go to jail. And you should see them now living with joy, with purpose, influencing others, going to the street and finding new kids who arrive, um, watching people find their purpose and flourish, nothing compares. Mm. Mm.
1: Well, Josh and Belinda, I'm blown away by your story and I think everyone who listens to this will be equally just amazed. Um, I know you don't want to take any credit, but uh, let me say I think you are a remarkable young Australian couple who have given your life to this. I just want to thank you both for being on um, this podcast, Hope in Crisis. You sure have given me hope. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Hope in Crisis. We're a new podcast, so we would really appreciate it if you would share this with your friends and leave us a rating and review whilst making sure you're subscribed to receive our future episodes. That would be great. Be blessed and we'll be back soon with our next inspiring conversation. Brought to you by The Eternity Podcast Network.